It seems like forever ago that weed was illegal in Canada. Now, we hardly even bat an eye at people smoking a joint in the street. It's like smoking a cigarette. But as we know, it wasn't always like this. Bella Lopez is going to take us on a little historical journey as she talks to people about weed prohibition and the relationship that it had to racism. This is Same Difference. It's the stuff that white folks are afraid of Up in Harlem, we go on a marijuana jag Four years ago, in 2016, I was living in Colombia, and my friends back home in Canada would jokingly ask me if I was living with the cartel. I was asked if I was growing weed with them, or if I had plans to smuggle something back, and I thought it was just extremely offensive and weird. When I went to Mexico, the same thing happened. In my mind, I remember thinking, like, I didn't get asked this when I was in Spain, so why now? I bring up this story because that was when I first realized I had only heard negative things about weed my whole life. See, I went through years of a mostly white, strict Catholic school environment. And at my first high school, I was almost entirely surrounded by wealthy white kids who drank a lot or loved party drugs. And when I switched schools in 11th grade, I started to see more kids like me. Kids who came from less wealthy families, listened to the same music, and ate seasoned food. This is a joke. It really was the first time that I didn't feel like I was out of place. And though I was still uncomfortable being around weed, I started to question if it really was the scary drug I had been warned about since middle school. And as I traveled after high school, I met so many stoners or people who use cannabis, and they weren't the scary criminals I expected at all. They were my friends, coworkers, even family. So I questioned if weed was always associated with and I'm making air quotes, the hood, because if so, doesn't that make weed prohibition just a form of systemic racism? Around the same time, I had a really good chat with a friend of mine, Nicole Donick, about the stigma around cannabis and her experiences as a black woman who uses it. I'm a criminology major at Wilfrid Laurier University, the Brantford campus. The first time I smoked weed was in grade 10, and I didn't touch it again until I started university. I kind of want to start smoking after class and then I for some reason felt like really uncomfortable just because in either serial killer docs or like even in some of my classes like my criminology classes they'd talk about criminals like oh when they were 18 years old they started smoking weed and hanging out with the wrong crowd and it led them to do this this and that without really saying it but like definitely implying it like you can smoke weed and not be a serial killer. Nicole is 22 and has been smoking weed regularly for the past five years. After I heard about Nicole's experience, I started looking into the history of cannabis consumption, and that was where I read about Dr. Susan Boyd. Now, Dr. Boyd is a professor in the Faculty of Human and Social Development at the University of Victoria. Her publications and research examine topics including the history of drug prohibition, drug law, drug policy, drugs and media, and drug culture. I learned a lot from her work including that prior to 1900, marijuana was actually a common ingredient in various medicines. It was used to treat almost everything from asthma to ulcers in Canada. She says that the criminalization of drugs in general are a part of racist Canadian policies that mimic the United States. And in Canada, drug control from the 1900s on has been primarily a criminal justice approach. 
and we've seen more and more drugs added to the drug schedule and police budgets and police powers expanding over the years. So law-abiding people became criminalized overnight as we enacted harsher and harsher drug laws over the century. So our drug laws are not based on evidence of harm, rather there are social control mechanisms in large part to profile poor indigenous and black people in Canada. In the conversation I had with Nicole, she brought up a similar point. Weed is often associated with minority groups and kind of shown in a negative light. People who see people who smoke as lazy or unproductive or like part of, I don't know, the wrong crowd, whatever this wrong crowd is. Even though I think weed, I don't know, I think it's great. Adding on to what Dr. Boyd spoke about, I learned that pretty much everything Canadians knew about weed at the time was based on what the American government said. Marijuana was originally spelt with an H and normally referred to as cannabis in English, but white settlers in America took on the Spanish name for the drug as a way to criminalize Latinos for smoking it recreationally. They even changed the spelling of the word to have a J in place of an H to accentuate its Latin roots. After reading this, I curiously reached out to a Latino friend and regular cannabis user. Hi, my name is Miguel Hernandez, and I started smoking weed when I was about 15 years old. I remember when I was young, sometimes smoking with friends, um, there were times where we would get paranoid and run away thinking that the cops were coming. He says though cannabis is now legal, he and other people of color are still impacted by the stigma. I grew up in the northwest of Toronto, which is super, super diverse, and I invited some of my white friends from school to a party. This was right before COVID, uh, and they didn't know anybody there, but they came. And for some reason, the fact that there was a bunch of people of color and everyone was smoking weed, they felt threatened, Um, like they were in a hood kind of situation, but it really wasn't like that at all. No one there was a hood man and everyone was just hanging out. But they they said that to me and made a comment that they wanted to leave. That happened this year in 2020. But how long has there been a stigma around cannabis and where did it come from? I'm going to walk you through a brief history lesson starting in 1930. In 1930, Harry Anslinger became the director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He is responsible for the criminalization of marijuana in the United States. In a leaked internal memo circa 1935, Anslinger said, and I quote, The primary reason to outlaw marijuana is its effects on the degenerate races, blacks and Hispanics. Here's another quote. Uh, I might say that uh, we find uh, this teenage addiction in certain segments and in certain neighborhoods. For instance, uh, you can almost uh, uh, chalk it down this way. New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans. At the time that Ainslinger said this, anyone in America would have known these communities were primarily home to people of color. A year later, in 1936, a propaganda film was released supported by the American government. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. 
A year after the film was released, cannabis was made illegal in the United States under the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Though Canada had made it illegal years prior in 1923, the first ever conviction related to cannabis was in 1937, shortly after the introduction to the act. In this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plant can be grown in your neighbor's yard, rolled into harmless-looking cigarettes, hidden in an innocent shoe. Ainslinger then reassured congressmen that the crackdown on cannabis would not affect the good musicians, but the jazz type, obviously targeting the black community as he said this. Soon after, the mayor of New York, Fiorella Guardia, said that he stood with the black and Hispanic communities being targeted by these raids and was against the prohibition of marijuana. Prohibition cannot be enforced for the simple reason that the majority of American people do not want it enforced and are resisting its enforcement. That being so, the orderly thing to do under our form of government is to abolish a law which cannot be enforced, a law which the people of the country do not want enforced. Basically, La Guardia was skeptical of the government's claim that marijuana was the main cause of destruction among American youth. So he commissioned a study of 31 scientists in 1937. And after six years of research, the commission found that smoking marijuana did not lead to violent or antisocial behavior, did not cause uncontrollable sexual urges, nor did it alter a person's basic personality structure. The report went on to disprove every negative effect claimed by Harry Ainslinger. And in response, Ainslinger had the press discredit the study and recommended every copy published to be destroyed. But do you know what's crazier? Nothing has changed. According to a 2018 study by the New York Times, black and Hispanic people in New York are arrested for low-level marijuana charges at 8 to 12 times the rate of white people. Even Nicole, who travels to visit family in the States, says she feels the need to take precautions when smoking there. When I smoke weed here, I'm not really concerned about getting caught or, you know, getting in any sort of trouble. But when I smoke in the States, um, say New York, you know, the people I'm with are a little more uh, cautious and aware of, like, where they are and where they're smoking. But not all Canadians feel carefree smoking weed here. I talked to someone who's been using cannabis since 1988 for a little more perspective. Hi, my name is Jay. I am in the um, IT world and I'm higher up in management and I am a stoner. I know it's legal now, but you know, I'm 50 years old. I've been used to hiding and smoking for years. I don't feel comfortable just because it's now regulated to smoke anywhere. I still feel like I need to hide. I feel like I'm from the seventies, man. I just, it doesn't make me feel comfortable. What were your smoke spots like when you were a teenager? Oh man, we used to hot, we used to go to parks or alleys, we'd smoke, but there was always somebody watching for the cops. If anybody screamed pig, everybody ran. We just threw the joint, whatever, we, everybody ran. You know, we're all terrified. You know, the last thing you wanted to do is get caught. Forget it, yeah. And who did you smoke with back then? I had a couple of really good girlfriends in high school and my one friend was Indian and the other one was a black girl and both smoked, but we all did it in secret. But if there was any cops, especially my friend who was black, she was terrified. But I mean, of course she's terrified. 
you know, it's a cop, but I, I found her more terrified than I was. Everybody would split up because they'd have to chase. If they were going to come after somebody, hopefully it wasn't you. None of us ever got caught, thank God, but... <laughs> Do you think that the stigma around cannabis has changed from when you were a teenager to now? People judge you. People who don't smoke, they automatically have this preconceived notion of what kind of person you're going to be. I'm a professional and they would die. Most people who know me would never, ever look at me and think I get high because I'm a professional in my field. Akwasi Ousu Bempa, a sociology professor and criminologist at the University of Toronto, has spent a lot of time in his career challenging the racist stigma. In a TED Talk called The Untapped Promise of Cannabis Legalization, he speaks about what steps should be taken now that cannabis is legal in Canada. Here's a clip. As a first step, we should ensure that our governments erase the criminal records for people who've been convicted of crimes that are no longer illegal. What we need is expungement. Expungement completely wipes any trace of that record clean, at least federally, and signals that the government was wrong to criminalize a behavior in the first place. Cannabis amnesty is a first step forward. Secondly, we must make sure that the very people who are targeted by the war on drugs have an opportunity to benefit from the fruits of legalization. To once have arrested and incarcerated a group of people for doing something, and then denying them the ability to benefit from its newfound legal status only adds insult to injury. And these insults are only made worse by the fact that we now have former police officials and police leaders running licensed cannabis companies. The very people responsible for waging the war on drugs get to cash in, while the people they targeted are left out. And finally, we should be pressuring our governments to reinvest some of the tax revenues generated from the sale of legal cannabis back into the communities most harmed by prohibition. There's a long way to go in terms of correcting weed prohibition. But I wanted to note to those who may not understand cannabis culture that even a small change, like being mindful of the stigma, is a foot in the right direction. Many stoners, like Jay, feel safer hanging around other stoners because of the sense of community present. If people know you're a weed smoker, you're automatically part of their group. Automatically, you know, because there's a camaraderie, right? Because we're all in this together. We all like to smoke. We're not hurting anybody. I don't feel free to go out and just smoke because I can. And neither does my little click group. It's taken me four years to unlearn the cannabis stigma that once felt so taboo. Though long delayed, it's time to challenge the war on drugs that continues to target Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities, especially now that cannabis is legal in Canada. It's the kind of stuff that dreams are made of. It's the stuff that white folks are afraid of. Yes, Bella, love that episode. It seems like forever ago that weed was illegal, and I think we forgot that it's such a privilege to be able to smoke a joint in the street, and it's not like that for everyone. That was Bella Lopez, and thanks to our executive producer, Emily Morantz, associate producer, Manuela Vega, artwork by Ben Shelley, theme music composed by John Powers, I've been your host, Gracie Bryson, and of course, last but not least, shout out to Amanda Capito. Trinity Bellwoods on 420. And remember, fitting in is overrated.